John chapter 12, verses 37 through 43. Blind unbelief is sure to err. Blind unbelief is sure to err. You would have seen that in the hymn that we just sang. That's where the line comes from. But this section has much to do with unbelief. But it also has to do with divine judicial hardening. Divine judicial hardening. The understanding and thought that God has the prerogative to harden someone's heart so that they would not or so that they could not believe. It's a weighty subject and one that doesn't make our flesh comfortable, but it is what the text says. But to be fair, at least in my intro, to be fair, the texts that follow this have to do with believing and the light shining and coming into the world to save. And so we get these things in Scripture, God's divine sovereignty, man's responsibility, and we get in all these arguments, but we must at least agree on this. Both are clearly in Scripture. Today, we get the side of divine sovereignty because that's what my text is. All right, here we go. Verse 37. Though he had done so many signs, the word signs for the Gospel of John is supernatural miracles, so he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Why not? So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Well, what did Isaiah say? Isaiah 55, 3 says, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, this is what Isaiah said. Isaiah 6, 10. He has blinded their eyes. By the way, he, the antecedent to he, is Jesus in our text. You can read it this way. Jesus has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his, Jesus' glory, and spoke of him, spoke of Jesus. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, here we go again with this weird faith, many of the authorities believed in him, but, you don't ever want the contrast to follow that statement. I believe Jesus, but. They believed in Jesus or believed in him, but, for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. Why would they not confess it? Well, they didn't want to be put out They didn't want to be excommunicated out of the synagogue. Why why do they not want to be excommunicated? Well, because they love the glory, praise, honor that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So therein is our text. Three simple points. Unbelief, unable, and unbelievable. Now, Divine judicial hardening is seen. There's going to be a parallel here, so let me set this in the introduction. Divine judicial hardening is seen very clearly in the life of Pharaoh. The life of Pharaoh. So if you know something about Exodus, you know something about Pharaoh, these things will make a lot of sense to you. 
Now, Moses said it this way. You may not be familiar with this passage, but in Deuteronomy 29, 2, verses 29, 2 through 4, Moses summoned all of Israel, and this is what he said. You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt. Now think, he did signs, supernatural, miraculous signs before their eyes in Egypt, in the land of Egypt. He saw what he did to Pharaoh and to all his servants, to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, and all those great wonders. You with me? But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand. He's not given you eyes to see, and he's not given you ears to hear. This is what the text says. God did supernatural miracles in the land of Egypt. They saw it with their eyes, but they couldn't see it. They heard it with their ears, but they couldn't hear it. They pondered it upon their hearts, but they couldn't comprehend it. You say, why couldn't they? I mean, I've read Exodus, and I see the signs, and I get it. You can't get anything unless God grants you understanding. We're, we're, at God's, we're dependent upon Him for revelation. God must show us. Unbelief and judicial hardening are in harmony. Unbelief and judicial hardening are are in harmony regardless of our mental limitations. Now for our text, verses 37 and 38, we have unbelief. You'll see it there in your text. You see the event that happens in verse 37. Jesus has done all these signs. We've been going through John for years now. You know the signs. A lame man's healed, a blind man's healed. All these signs, these miraculous happenings that are occurring in the life of Jesus. And we just came off of what? There's a guy dead for four days, and Jesus raises him from the dead. These are signs that ought to get your attention. And so these signs are happening, but these signs that were done, we have this phrase, they still did not believe in him. You have to at least ponder for a moment, what other sign could be done to bring about their belief? I mean, we've got blind men receiving sight, lame men leaping for joy, and dead men walking around town. What other sign do you need to procure belief? Or is it possible that the signs just made them harder? Verse 39, so that the words spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled. Supernatural signs. Now, as I said, it parallels with Exodus. I will not take you through all the texts by any means, but let me remind you of the beginning of Exodus. Exodus chapter 4, verse 8. He says to Moses, If they will not believe you, they won't believe you, uh, they won't listen to the first sign, they might believe the latter sign. So it starts in Genesis 4. Then in Genesis 4, 21, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh 
all the miracles, all the signs I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart. Why? So that he will not let my people go. I'm going to cause him to be hardened to restrain my people from deliverance because I have a future plan that's far greater that I'm working towards. Okay. Then you get to Exodus 7. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Think, God's going to do something. God's going to do supernatural miracles, and he's also going to do a hardening to make sure that the miracles that are done will not be understand by, understood by the people that he does the miracles before. Are you tracking this? Yeah, I'm not trying to be controversial. I'm just telling you this is what our text says. This is the parallel. Then you go through the whole account of all the signs in Egypt, and you get this. God hardened Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. God hardened Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Then you have Pharaoh and God working in unity. God hardens and Pharaoh hardens his own heart. They're both in agreement that we need a hard heart. Goes out throughout the book of Exodus, and then it gets met with this grand deliverance in which they're brought out through the, dry, the, the, the Red Sea by the parting of the waters. So that type of thought, miraculous signs, and a hardened heart. So if you, if you haven't picked it up, this is all you have so far. You have miraculous signs, and you have the hardening of the heart that they can't understand. We come to John. We have miraculous signs, and we have a group of Jews that say, we do not believe. Yet the same parallel that is happening. Supernatural displays did not produce faith in Pharaoh, nor does it produce faith in these Jews. There's a little note here, in case you're in the room wondering about salvation, and you're thinking, well, if God would write something in the sky, if I saw someone raised from the dead, if a blind person received their sight, if something really wild happened today, I might believe. You don't even have a biblical foundation for such a thought. If something wild happened and God wrote something in the sky today, it may make you harder. You say, well, well then what should I look to? You should look to the gospel, because that's the only thing that will soften we get a purpose here in our text, verse 30, 38. They still did not believe, and then you get this one word in Greek. It's a hena clause, and it's translated, so that. Now, this is pretty basic stuff, but let me just give you the basics, and you can work it out for yourself. When you use this uh, hena clause, so that, it's either a result or it's a purpose. Okay, I'm going to make this so simple all of us can get it. So this is what's happening here. The result of the signs is the fulfilling of Isaiah's words, or if it's a purpose, the purpose of the sign is to fulfill what Isaiah spoke. See the result or purpose. Now let's make it let's make it really easy. Randall throws a rock and the window is broken. Randall throws a rock and the window is broken. The result of me throwing the rock is that the window got broke. That's one way to take it. I can say Randall threw a rock and the window was broken, but it was my purpose to break the window. 
Now that's a little bit different. I intended to break the window when I threw the rock. So is what happens here just a result of what Isaiah said? Or is it that it was God's divine purpose to speak through Isaiah to fulfill this in the life of these Jews? Undoubtedly, at least in the Greek language, the Hena clause most predominantly means purpose. It was the intention of God to bring this about. Now, Isaiah gets brought to the forefront in this discussion because his quotes are here. And it says in Isaiah 38, here's this purpose that the words spoken by the prophet would be fulfilled, might be fulfilled. And this quote comes from Isaiah 53, verse 1. The question is, Lord, who's believed what he's heard from us? To, to whom has the, the arm of the Lord? The arm of the Lord is his strength, his power to do supernatural things. So who has the arm of the Lord been revealed to? Now, now notice these two connections. I've told you supernatural signs and a divine hardening. Now I'll give you another thought. A message is preached and a message is rejected. So in Isaiah, he's proclaimed the word. I mean, when you get in this part, he's gone through 52 chapters of preaching. A message has gone out. The truth has gone out to the nation of Israel through the prophet Isaiah. But this far into his ministry, he's like, but who's it been revealed to? It's almost like after all these years of ministry, Isaiah's like, I still don't know who believes what I'm saying. I don't know anybody that believes what I'm preaching. Well, the Apostle Paul understood this as well. Because in Romans chapter 10, he asked the same question that Isaiah asked. In Romans 10, 16, he says, But they've not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who's believed what he's heard from us? In the context of how will they hear without a preacher? Beautiful feet that go out with the gospel of peace. There's a message that goes out, but not all are obeying the gospel. Signs, hard heart. Message, unbelief. Lord, is there anybody on the known planet that would repent and believe in Jesus? That's the question. In Isaiah 52, 13 through 50 through 12, suffering servant uh, passage there. It's a glorious text. You can read it later, if you will. 52 through 13 through 53, 12. Here's kind of the bedrock of what goes on in that passage. Man rejects the servant of the Lord and God exalts the servant of the Lord. In John 12, the Jews reject the Messiah. And in the text we just preached last week, God glorifies the Messiah. The same thing in Exodus and the same thing in Isaiah is the same thing that is being unfolded here to fulfill what was spoken 700 years in advance. To put that into your thinking as well. When Isaiah preached these things, 700, 750 years before Christ even came on the scene. 
that there's going to be a people that have signs done and a message spoke, and they are going to be hard, they're going to be deaf, and they're going to be blind to the things of the Messiah, and they're going to remain in their unbelief because unbelief is sure to err. Say, sure to err. Yes, because their error will put them in hell. Application, if you err in this issue of belief, you're going to wake up in hell wishing that you had not erred in your belief. It's very important. Point number two, unable. It gets more difficult before it gets easier. Verses 39 and 40, look at your text. See what God's Word says. Now, I'm going to change the word therefore to the word because. Because they could not believe. Not really much difference, but the cause of Isaiah, Isaiah caused something. He caused them to have an inability to believe. Because of what Isaiah said, therefore it became impossible for them to believe. The theological term is divine judicial hardening, I've already mentioned. Now, you may not like it, you may not be comfortable with it, I can only present the truth to you, but it's God's prerogative to harden or soften. Well, I don't like that. He didn't ask you, number one. Number two, he's not seeking for your wisdom about how to govern the universe. It's his prerogative to work with you however he wants to. He has because he's the creator. He's the potter. You are just the clay. So it's his prerogative to do so. And it is his prerogative to give men what they deserve or to grant them grace. Notice the wording. We deserve judgment. We deserve hell. And God is perfectly righteous to give us that. We broke His law. We rebelled against Him. We were estranged from the womb. God has the right to hold His judicial law over you. But God also has the prerogative to say, I'll give you what you don't deserve. I'll give you a Savior. He can do either one. So because of what Isaiah said, Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12, because of that... They were not able. 700 years in advance, it's spoken and produces an inability. Now, this word for able, dunamai, noun form, is to possess the capability to do something, can, able, be capable. They had no capability, they had no power within themselves. They had nothing within them. Look, they could not pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. They couldn't believe something strongly enough that it could become true. In actuality, they, that they're not able, they took what ability they had and used that ability against themselves. They made themselves unable to believe. This negative is attached here. They're not able. But the question remains, why are they not able? 
You at least have to grapple with it. I mean, it is our text. They could not believe. You look at 39. It says it. You can do it in Greek. You can do it in English. You can do it in a variety of translations. But it says they could not believe. You have to at least ask the question, why? Why can they not believe? Why can my family not member not believe? Why can my coworker not believe? Why can the person at the store not believe? We go to the fireworks stand to pass out gospels tonight. Why would there be people there that cannot believe? Why? What's going on here? Because there's a cause to this. There's a reason for this. Namely, it's because this is what Isaiah said would happen. Isaiah prophesied it, and now it is becoming true right here in our very text. Because Isaiah said again, he, he said what? He said, Jesus has blinded their eyes. That's why they can't believe. If Jesus blinds you, pray tell me, how are you going to see? If Jesus hardens your heart, pray tell, how are you going to understand the things of God? You see, these things are spiritually discerned. And unless the Spirit opens your eyes and softens your heart, you can read this book to the cows come home and not get any spiritual understanding. You don't believe it? The Pharisees searched these scriptures every day and couldn't find Jesus. And Jesus says, all of this book testifies about me and you can't even find me. Because they're blind and they're deaf and their hearts are hard. He said, the, he, he's blinded their eyes, he's hardened their heart, lest... To keep them from seeing and understanding with their heart. If, because if they did, they would turn and then I would heal them. Historically speaking, Isaiah, just historically about Isaiah. Is anybody uncomfortable yet? These things are difficult. Y'all doing okay? Just trying to give you the sense of what this text says. Isaiah saw a vision. The Lord is high and lifted up. We'll talk about that probably next week, how I saw Christ. He comes to genuine repentance over this vision of the thrice holy God. And then he's given a ministry that will result in the inability of his audience to hear. Not everybody's turning in a resume for this position, right? In his ministry position, he's going to be scorned. He's going to be ignored, he's going to be rejected, and he's going to be ostracized. Any young preachers want to sign up for this ministry? He's commanded to take his ministry in full knowledge that the results will be negative. And actually, his preaching is going to evoke or bring about the negative response. Yes, in some deed, in some, and indeed in some way, his preaching is going to be the cause of the negative response. You just think that through for a minute. God calls you to go to place B and to preach and tells you before you go, by the way, they're not going to see, they're not going to hear, and they're not going to understand. There's going to be no converts and there's going to be no baptisms. What is your response? You see, we can't get over lopsided here on one side or the other. God's sovereign, so I'm not taking this. I'm not doing this. No, no, no. Isaiah says, ah, send me. God, if you're commanding me to go and preach, if you're telling me to take this gospel message out, whatever it may result in, whatever its purpose may be, if you're the one telling me to go, send me. Don't let your view of divine sovereignty silence your mouth from gospel proclamation. Send me. 
By the way, I don't know if I have critics in the room, but I know there's critics out there. And I know one thing that they would like to do is discount the Old Testament. Well, you're building your sermon off Exodus and the law of Moses. And you're building your sermon off Isaiah and the prophet Isaiah. But we're New Testament Christians. I'm glad you brought it up. Well, let's see what the New Testament says about this very central theme. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 14 through 15. He says this, Indeed, in the case of the prophecy of Isaiah, it is fulfilled when it says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but you'll never perceive. Why? Because this people's heart has grown dull. With their eyes they can barely, with their ears they can barely hear. With their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand what their heart, with their heart and turn and then I would heal them. Well, looky there, in the New Testament, he says the exact same thing in the Gospel. Well, yeah, but that's only one time. Okay, well, let's do it again. Mark chapter 4, verse 11. He said to them, To you has been given the secrets of the kingdom of God, the disciples. It's been given to them. But for those outside, everything is in parables. Why? So that, I speak in parables for this purpose, that they may indeed see but not perceive. And they may hear, but not understand. Because if they did, then they would turn and I would forgive them. Okay, well that's two in the Gospels, but you know, we kind of, the church was birthed in Acts. Okay, I'm glad you brought it up. Acts chapter 28, the end of the book that brings about the history of the birth of the church. Acts 28. Well, they're disagreeing among themselves. They departed. Here's where the departure came. After Paul made one statement, divided the whole room. Well, what did the Apostle Paul say at the end of Acts? He said, The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. This people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. So now at the end of the birth of the church, Paul says, Oh, by the way, guys, Isaiah was right in his application and his preaching, and that's why you're blind and deaf and hard-hearted. Well... Maybe things changed after the birth of the church. Well, maybe and maybe not, but I'm glad you brought it up. Romans 9, 18. So then, God has mercy on whomever he wills. Well, okay, what else? And he hardens whomever he wills. You should be getting the impression in this sermon somewhere that God's actually sovereignly in charge of all things. And then in 2 Thessalonians, once again, therefore, God sends them a strong delusion. Why would he do that? So that they may believe what is false. Point number three, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. In several regards, for some of you, it's unbelievable that God would function in such a way. 
And in another regard, it's unbelievable that anybody could reject Christ when he's so infinitely wonderful and beautiful. It's unbelievable to me that anyone would turn away from Christ and say, I will not follow, I will not be baptized, I will not live my life in a way that honors him. It's unbelievable to me. Like you're going to get a better offer? Prophecy, panic, preference, and the problem. Prophecy. When Isaiah saw the Lord, you'll see it there in your text, verse 41. And Isaiah saw the Lord, because he saw the glory, he spoke of him. So when he saw the Lord high and lifted up in Isaiah 6, he spoke about Christ. Isaiah said what he said because he saw Jesus' glory. What things? The things about judicial hardening. The sight, listen closely, The sight of Jesus reveals that it is Jesus who did the hardening. Now this is where much of us want to start checking out because this goes contrary to our belief about Christ. You can argue to the cows come home, but the antecedent is Jesus. He is Jesus, and we can talk about that more next week, but it's undoubtedly grammatically true, theologically true, that it is Jesus that he sees, and it is Jesus who does the action of blinding, hardening, and deafening the person. That becomes difficult. If Jesus is the one who does this, what's the response of much of modern Christendom? What's their response? You know it. Quote, I'd put it this way. They would say, My Jesus would not do that. My Jesus would blind no one. My Jesus would harden no one. My Jesus would make no one deaf. What are you going to do with this text? This is my only resolve here is we must at least submit ourselves under the authority of what is being said. Isaiah saw him. Isaiah spoke and prophesied. And this is what Isaiah said about Jesus. My Jesus would not do that. All I can say to you is, dear friend, you have a different Jesus than the Jesus that is defined in Holy Scripture. Look, Jesus is not your homeboy. He's not your buddy, as Jack said out of devotional this week. He's not that. He is the sovereign God of the universe. There's an equality in the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are equal. And the Son has the divine prerogative to harden or soften, to blind or open eyes, to make lame or to raise. Who do you think formed the mouth anyways? Who do you think created the eye? Who created the ear? Who created all things? All things were created by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. John 1, verse 3. It's a prophecy that Jesus would do this. Well, panic comes in our text then. We've got a Messiah doing signs. We've got unbelief. We've got inability. And then we have this panic that happens in the human flesh. The panic is between what? Belief, faith, you use either word, faith is in battle with something. It happens in this room a lot. Faith being in battle with something. What is faith battling with here? The fear of man. 
Which way do I go? I believe Jesus. I mean, good enough. There's a dead man walking around named Lazarus. I mean, I have to believe the guy. There was this guy at the pool of Bethesda for 38 years, and now he's walking around leaping and doing cartwheels. I mean, I have to believe the guy, but I mean, kind of got this panic situation. I don't want to go public. I, I mean, are you kidding me? Stand in front of a church and be baptized and say, I belong to Jesus, and everybody's going to be staring at me? I mean, I believe Jesus, but can I believe him secretly? Can I, can I hide under some type of cover, and I can secretly get in a side door of heaven? Because, you know, it's kind of embarrassing, and it may cost me something to say, I'm a wicked, depraved sinner, and I'm calling on Christ to be my Savior. To do that publicly, everybody will think I'm a sinner. You are a sinner. Well, I don't want to go public with it. It makes me uncomfortable. It made them uncomfortable as well. Proverbs 29 Verse 25, the fear of man is a trap, snare. Fear of man will catch you, hold you out of heaven, grab a hold of you, lead you to your death, and you can't get away. You start looking and listening to all the voices around you, and it just traps you and prevents you from seeing the glory of Christ. Believe Jesus, but fear closed closed their mouth. One word in Greek, it's a little bit difficult to pronounce. Let me give it a shot. Aposunagogos. Aposunagogos. What in the world does that word mean? Expelled from the synagogue. Excluded. Put under a curse. Banned. These Jews are like, I believe Jesus, but if I go public with it, I'm going to be banned. I'm going to be marked. I'm going to be ostracized. I'm going to be excommunicated from the most prestigious function in society. It's going to come. Look, if I'm not a part of the synagogue, I may lose my job. If I'm not a part of the synagogue, I'm I'm going to have the same friends that I used to have. If I'm not part of the synagogue, I may become the laughing stock of my community. I don't know that I'm willing to grab a hold of all of that. That's going to cost too much. But I believe Jesus. I believe Him. As long as it doesn't cost me. As long as it does cost me. They look like those early on in the Gospel of John. You can turn in your text if you like. It's John chapter 2. You know the text. But let me uh, reword at least one phrase that makes it bring out the word for faith a little bit more clearly. In John chapter 2, verse 23. Now, when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, we have this situation. Many believed in his name. When did they believe? Well, when they saw the signs. Same thing we're talking about. They saw the signs and they believed. But Jesus, on his part, did not believe them. Because he himself knew all men and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. He knew whether the heart 
was one of genuine belief or not. And in John 2, it was a spurious faith. In John 12, it's a denial, no faith at all. Both have the same substance. They're not willing to embrace Christ with a saving faith. Saving faith can't be a secret faith. Saving faith can't be a closet Christianity. Saving faith can't be something done in a corner somewhere. Look, if homosexuality can come out of the closet, it's about time somebody came out of the church and became obvious that they stand with Christ. Oh, look at the pressure they faced because they were honest to say they're gay. Whoop-de-doo! Stand up and say, I belong to Christ in this world. Then I'll be impressed. It'll cost you. They were not like Nicodemus, John 7. They were not like Joseph, towards John 19, who risked their lives for the Lord and identified with Jesus when he needed a proper burial. This may cost my life, but Jesus is going to get a proper burial. I'm with the dead man, Nicodemus and Joseph. I'm with him. If it kills me, that's fine, but we're going to bury him before you kill me. That's the type of faith that needs to be had. So the panic is going on in their hearts, and the preference overrides their decision. What is their preference? Maybe your preference, maybe mine at times. Their preference was they like the approval of man. Happens to preachers, happens to moms and dads and kids all the time. I do what I do because I want your approval. And if I don't get your approval, I change it up in order that I can get your approval. We do that because we have a preference. We want man to validate us. What happened to, I want God to validate me? How was the sermon today, Pastor? I think God was pleased. Right? It would, it would help a lot of preaching going on in the world. Was God pleased? Because if he wasn't pleased, it doesn't matter if the whole world thought it was good. They preferred glory. They preferred performance, status, recognition, renown, prestige. Do you do that? I, I would be more open about my Christianity at work, but, you see, this would happen. I would take an open Bible to the restaurant by the way, it saves you a lot of heartaches. I got to go for the first time in my life. Where did I go? Uncle Julio's. You want to clear the room? Just open a Bible, set it on the table, and wait on the waiter. It's like they don't even come to the table. Can I help you, sir? <laughs> I'm a little closer. I'm reading something here. Just, I'm not going to take my Bible into public because then people will treat me differently. Hey, I'm not going to make this stand at the family reunion because then my family will hate me. I'm not going to do this in this situation because then people will think this of me. I'm not going to respond on social media this way because then all the attacks will come. Right? All of those things are preference. We want man's glory. Man's approval more than God's. That's what's happening here with these Jews. truly believe Jesus is to follow Jesus. And the leaders of the synagogue hate him. Here's the problem. Internally, the question becomes, listen to the 
problematic question. You may not have asked it out loud, but by practice, some of you are asking it. How can I believe Jesus and at the same time remain in the same religious group? That's what they're asking. I want to believe Jesus and stay in the synagogue. That's what they're asking. So essentially the question is this. How can I go into heaven and live in agreement with the world? How can I get to glory and make no tension here below? Answer the question. You can't. So there's a secret door, a secret passageway. There's a narrow path. There's few who follow it. You hate your mother, your brother, your sister. You'd love me in such contrast that you would rebel against your own family, that you'd grab a hold of Christ. It is the expression of the multitudes who want a secret salvation with a public, worldly approval. It's like a church full of people that can't go through one sermon without searching their phones on the internet. We can't even, we can't even maintain a priority of Christ in church because we're so concerned about what's going on out there. Why in the world would you even bring a phone to church? If you want to get down to bedlam with things, why would you even bring one? Guard your steps when you go to the house of God and come with the priority of Christ and turn off the whole world and set yourself on Christ. I want to hear from him. I don't want to be distracted from anything. I don't want anything vibrating. I don't want anything beeping. I don't want anything flashing. I need to hear from God today. I've been through all of this this week, and I've come to church today, and I need a word from God. Don't distract me. However, to be fair, there's hope here, and I don't want you to miss it. This, what I've said of this text is true. But they maintain some level of belief about Jesus. And maybe God will grant another day like he did to some of these. Right? So you turn your Bible to the book of Acts. You look in the book of Acts. And you'll find some of those same people that were in John 12. In Acts 6, verse 7, after they... Broke up things and said, look, dude, we got to be about the preaching of the Word of God. We can't be distracted with other things. We're going to devote ourselves to prayer and the preaching of the Word. Acts 6, verse 7. And the Word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the... Yeah, that's some of the Jews in John chapter 12. Became obedient... Two, faith. I pray that happened for you. That one day, all these things, many in this room say, I believe in Jesus, I believe in Jesus, I believe in Jesus. And then one day, you would be obedient to the faith you proclaim. The gospel certainly demands the death to self and faith in Christ, negates the fear of man, enables bold, clear profession. Like our memory verse a couple of weeks ago, if we endure, we will reign with Him. But if we deny Him, He also will deny us. Now, let me very briefly set the sermon before you in a one-sentence, two-sentence form 
and give you a conclusion. All these signs are done according to the law of Moses, and he doesn't give them revelation. All these signs are done in Exodus, and Pharaoh is hardened by God in order that he can't see, he can't hear, and he can't understand. Isaiah is sent into a ministry to preach and to have signs in which people will not see, not hear, and not understand. Then we come to the Gospel of John, and we hear the same thing. We see the same thing again in Romans, and we see this theme run out through the New Testament, and we've got this issue of God's prerogative to harden or soften. And you say, in a logical conclusion, if all of that's true, then what in the world am I supposed to do? I mean, if God can harden whomever he wants, then God's going to harden whomever he wants. And if God can soften whoever he wants, God's going to soften whoever he wants. So what do we do? Just do nothing? I mean, what is our response to such teaching? I would say read your Bible and read all the way through the book of Isaiah. And when you get to the end of Isaiah, you'll get to about chapter 63. And this is what it says. You can turn in your Bibles if you like. It's a lengthy. This is my conclusion is the reading of the text. Isaiah 63, 15. This is what Isaiah gets led to in this ministry that he does. Isaiah 63, 15 through the end of chapter 64. I'll emphasize the parts you need to know. Look down from heaven. This is his prayer. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassions are held back from me. You are our father though abraham does not know us and israel does not acknowledge us you O lord are our father our redeemer from of old is your name O lord why do you make us wonder from your ways why do you harden our heart that we fear you not here comes the here comes the request return for the sake of your servants the tribes of your heritage, your holy people, held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Here's the request. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Why? That the mountains might quake at your presence when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to all to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations might tremble in your pres at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. Notice this, from of old, no one has heard. No one's perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you. You're the God who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways, behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins, we've been a long time. Is there any way we can be saved? We have all become like one who's unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There's no one who calls upon the na your name who rouses himself to take hold of you. Why is that? You've hidden your face from us. You've made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But... Now, but now, O oh Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. 
Be not so terribly angry, O Lord. Remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look. Please look, God. We're your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire. And all our places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? You say, what am I supposed to get out of that? It's a plea for mercy. You just make it real simple. I'm a little kid. I'm six years old. I go in the kitchen. I grab a jar of pickles. And I go to open it. And I can't open it. Aggravating. I want pickles. What do you do? Somebody tighten the pickle jar too tight. I can't do nothing. I don't have the ability. I go in the living room. My dad's strong as an ox. Dad, will you open the pickles for me? <laughs> My dad laughing, you little sissy, bring it here. But you go and ask someone who can. I can't make you see. I can't make you hear. I can't soften your heart. Say, what do I do? I'm asking God to be merciful to you. I'm asking God to do something in you that you can't even do for yourself. I'm asking God to have mercy and kindness because if He doesn't, you're lost forever. And so that's the urgent plea. That's why Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. That's why Paul labors night and day with tears because he's pleading for God. You, you can go down to the fireworks stand if that's our outreach. You go to Syracuse, you go to Honduras, whatever it is your outreach is, what do you do? God, please be merciful. God, speak to a heart. God, raise the dead. God, open somebody's eyes. Because if God does, they'll never be the same again. So our evangelistic approach as a church is one that is totally submitted to the sovereignty of God while we urge men and women to repent and believe. Because they're accountable whether they do or do not. Brother Jeff, you come and lead us in a closing hymn.